The following podcast may contain explicit language, if we're lucky. It's Friday, August 28th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist broadcasting from my closet in West Hollywood, the creative city. I'm Sonari Lenton sitting in for Mike Pesca. I'm a roving economics reporter and podcaster. I'm host of the podcast, Bring Back Bronco, which you can find wherever you listen to your podcasts. I want to talk today about the National Basketball Association's protests over police violence. Now, the recent protests of Colin Kaepernick and, say, the Milwaukee Bucks seem novel and interesting. Well, I want to look at these protests not as much as athletes protesting, but more as workers protesting. And ahead of Labor Day, I wanted today's show to revolve completely around work. Actually, I've been spending the better part of a year researching the history and nature of work. I'm writing a book with my fellow economics reporter, Dustin Dwyer, about the end of work. You can find out more about that at notworkingshow.com. Now, essentially, the NBA protest where athletes refuse to do work is one of the oldest forms of protest. The current generation of athletes and sit-down strikes are actually part of a larger social movement that's happening not only with black men, but with the labor movement in general. If you're my age or younger, the idea of a highly paid athlete walking off his or her job might seem weird or unusual. But actually, that's only because we've just ended a period in our nation's sports history that I would posit was dominated by two men. One was O.J. Simpson and the other, Michael Jordan. Now, O.J. Simpson joined the NFL in 1969. His success was really as the first black pitch man, which paved the way for a whole generation. O.J. Simpson was able to get big money, but it didn't come from the NFL. It came from big endorsements. Literally before 1970, black players didn't have endorsement deals. Sneaker deals, for instance, didn't come along until Michael Jordan in the 80s. The great Jackie Robinson ended his career and ran into human resources for the company chock full of nuts. So there was no multi-million dollar contract waiting for him. That's a sign of how far outside of the economic power structure black men were during the middle of the last century. Now it seems rare to have a radicalized athlete, but before the 70s and O.J. Simpson's hurt rental car ads, it seemed a lot more common. This week in Major League Baseball was Jackie Robinson Day. Now, history often smooths over what a badass Jackie Robinson really was. We love to sand down his rough edges, but they're still there. My favorite Jackie Robinson story is this one. In 1944, Robinson was in the Army. He was a lieutenant, and he got on a military bus with a light-skinned wife of another black officer. Now, this was happening in Fort Hood in Texas. And lest anybody think that Texas is not the Deep South, it was one of the first states to enact Jim Crow laws. However, this bus that we're talking about was on a military base and blacks could sit wherever they wanted to, in theory. So Jackie Robinson gets on the bus and sits somewhere in the middle. And when the driver yelled, get to the back of the bus and threatened to have him arrested, Robinson shook his finger in the driver's face and told him, Quit fucking with me. This was 1944. And of course, he was court-martialed for it. He was court-martialed for insubordination, disturbing the peace, drunkenness, conduct unbecoming an officer, insulting a civilian woman, and refusing to obey the lawful orders of a superior officer. 
With the support of the NAACP and other organizations, Jackie Robinson won his court-martial. Now think about it. We wouldn't have Jackie Robinson as the first major league player if he had been dishonorably discharged. But to be clear, that was before his career really took off. Later, he was heavily involved in the civil rights movement. Here he is in 1964 in Birmingham, Alabama, talking about some of the same injustices we are seeing today. Now, I don't think that white Americans understand what Birmingham means to all of us throughout this country. And we think about the little kids being tossed from one side of the street to the other by the tremendous force of this hose. And we think about, oh, this picture just sickens me, this big brave policeman down here with his knee on the throat of this lady. And the problem of it is, ladies and gentlemen, is that this same picture of the dogs and of this policeman with his knee in the throat of this lady it's a picture that's being portrayed throughout the world. You know, when you hear that clip, you realize the truth doesn't change. This summer is the 42nd anniversary of the Mexico City Olympics, when two black men raised their fists in the Black Power salute. Tommy Smith and John Carlos shook the world and angered a lot of people. But so did Muhammad Ali, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Arthur Ashe, and Jim Brown, who weren't just outspoken, but expressed definitely radical views for their time. That activism went largely dormant since the rise of the big endorsement deals and the billion-dollar athlete. Michael Jordan famously said in 1995, Republicans buy sneakers too. Now, even though later he said that he made that statement in jest, that's still clearly a guiding principle of his career. Here is the current billion-dollar athlete talking about police brutality, L.A. Laker, LeBron James. The George Floyd killing and just seeing that video and seeing, you know, how many people were hurt, not only in Minnesota, um, in Minneapolis, but all over the world, and especially in the black community, because we've seen this over and over and over, you know, about police brutality and and the things that goes on um, in the inner city um, when being, you know, racially profiled as an African-American black man or as as a black woman and things that's going on. So, you know. It's been a lot that's gone on in 2020. You can almost hear it. It sounds extemporaneous. But I know there was a publicist and a business manager and probably a couple other people who were at least part of the crafting of that spontaneous statement. This moment of social protest is merging with something interesting, the rise and boldness of the labor movement. One of the unintended consequences of Donald Trump's presidency, think about the movements that have erupted, The Me Too movement is about work. The racial reckoning in newsrooms is about work. When the Milwaukee Bucks surprised their fans and those inside the NBA bubble, it was merging once again of the labor movement and the civil rights movement and professional sports. The rise of the new athlete, though, is amazing to behold. You see, I'm a Chicagoan. I was in the fourth grade when Michael Jordan came to Chicago. I was working as a valet parker on Rush Street when the Bulls won a championship. I have driven Michael Jordan's cars. You cannot get any bigger in sports terms for me. But now I live in Los Angeles, and my buddy Chenton always wants to get into an argument with me about who's the greatest player of all time, Jordan or LeBron James. And I refuse, absolutely refuse, to indulge in such nonsense. But at this very moment, I take any member of the Milwaukee Bucks, even Frank Mason III, over Air Jordan. 
On the show today, I spiel about the end of work as we know it. But first, I talk to Patricia Resnick. She wrote the original screenplay to the landmark movie 9 to 5, which turns 40 this year. And it's timely as hell. Dolly Parton deserves, like, the Nobel Peace Prize. She is the best human being I have ever met in my whole life. That's a great place to start an interview, isn't it? I'm speaking to uh, Patricia Resnick. And so that you know, this year is the 40th anniversary of the comedy classic 9 to 5. 9 to 5 premiered in December of 1980. The song became a hit. It launched Dolly Parton's movie career. It gave us Dabney Coleman, a man I believe to be truly underrated as a comedian. And more importantly, comedy and music aside... It was essentially the first and best of the Me Too movies. Patricia Resnick wrote the original screenplay, and she joins us from Studio City. Welcome, Patricia. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thank you. How are you? I'm good. I was, uh, well, I spent last night looking at some of your work. I forgot how much I like straight talk (laughs) and uh, and, and, and nine to five. And for those of you who don't, I mean, for our listeners who don't know, 9 to 5 is about three women, essentially, and their boss. The three women are played by Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda, and Dolly Parton. And the boss is uh, Dabney Coleman. And Dabney Coleman in this movie is the traditional horrific boss. So when you think about where this movie is, it is at the end of sort of a movement of office workers. So a group that eventually gets called the nine to five movement starts in about 19 in the early seventies looking to give more rights to office workers. And it essentially, from what I can, from my research, and you tell me where this is wrong, essentially ends up in front of Jane Fonda, who is the producer of the film. And she's like, this, this movement deserves a film, right? That's, that's the kind of math that I get. And she essentially commissions, from what I've read in her autobiography, she essentially commissions a movie to be written about the life of these office workers. Am I getting that, that line up right? Yeah. No, I think, that, I think that's right. I, I, uh, I read in the trade papers that Jane Fonda wanted to make a movie about secretaries with Dolly Parton and Lily Tomlin. And um, Lily Tomlin gave me my first, my first writing gig and uh, we were friends. And I had, I had written um, a piece for Dolly for a share special. And so when I read this, I thought, well, I should write this. And I had my agent check to see if there was a writer on it and there wasn't. And so they got, some, uh, you know, material of mine to Jane and she read it and met with me and uh, there, she didn't have a story. She had what she wanted to say. And I, I remember I walked out of her house with this gigantic stack of papers of statistics about office workers, but she knew she wanted it to be a comedy because she felt, you know, like spoonful of sugar. She could make the polemic go down easier, make it more acceptable if it was a comedy. So my job then became, you know, okay, so what's the story? What is the story? Not to out your age necessarily, because that's a thing in Hollywood, 
But you were 27 when you wrote the original screenplay for 9 to 5. How'd you learn so much about office life by 27? So I did not have any experience working in an office. My pre-Hollywood job was waitressing. And so um, I decided, well, I, I need to be in an office. I need to learn what that is. And so 20th Century Fox made it possible for me to go spend a couple of weeks hanging out at the offices of their insurance company. And I went every day and I hung out with all the secretaries and got people's stories and observed. And uh, it's funny because I was actually just talking to my 24-year-old son about this a minute ago. We were talking about that people don't do as much real-life research anymore. They just, you know, if they don't know about something, they just Google it. And, and um, nothing is the equivalent of going and finding out what people's real life experiences are. So that's what I did. I also, um, I also wanted to see what it would be like to try to get a job in an office. So I went and applied for a job and I had to take a typing test. And even though I was a writer, I'd been a writer at that point for a number of years. Um, I did not do well. I did not do well on the typing test, but the guy who interviewed me, said some really inappropriate things, which were very helpful for putting me in the right mindset uh, for the movie. And, and uh, what are you thinking? Like, I'm writing, did you know that the movie would be about sexual harassment at that moment? Or did that prompt you to include it? So what's interesting about the movie and is not talked about that much is that originally sexual harassment was not really part of the story to begin with. It was sort of more about, you know, that there was no equal pay for equal work, that women were not promoted um, because men had families that they needed to support and, you know, all those old bromides. And uh, what happened was really from spending time in the office, there was a secretary who everybody assured me was sleeping with the boss. And then um, I took her out to lunch one day, and uh, this was back in the day of uh, like three martini lunches, and she got a little drunk, and she, was, she wasn't like the character that Dolly played. She, she was actually, uh, I think she might have been German. She was very kind of buttoned down, but she started crying and telling me that she knew everybody thought she was sleeping with the boss and she wasn't sleeping with the boss. And then I started watching how the boss treated her and treated the other women. And that's where the whole sexual harassment part of the movie came from. And, and you know, what's interesting. I think that one of the more nine to five aspects of this story is I was reading Jane Fonda's autobiography and she talks about this and you would get from the reading, well, there's no Patricia Resnick in that, in the book. And Colin, you know, sits down in front of a group of women, according to the story, and, you know, listens to them and writes down what they say and goes off and writes a movie. So in, in what has to be a, a humorous nine to five conclusion, you get written out of the history of nine to five 
in the book. Yeah, I got nine to five. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's classic, right? The man gets the credit. Now, if you read Dolly Parton's autobiography, I am in there. I honestly don't know why Jane erased me from the narrative other than as wonderful as she is, she's a woman of a certain age that, you know, has certain feelings about men as opposed to women. And I mean, it's just, it's just funny that it's, it's a film that promotes women. And I was erased from the narrative. We know one of the, one of the fun things about nine to five is that it did, if I'm right about that, it started a relationship with you and Darley Parton. It was lasted, you know, all these years, you know, Dolly is right now, yet again, <laughs> right in the zeitgeist. In that experience, in this, these experiences, what, what stood out working with these three incredible women, Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin, each from sort of a different, you know, point in Hollywood? What, what did you take from, you know, as a younger person working with these incredibly powerful women? Well, I had always been an admirer of, of Jane you know, as an, as an actress, as an activist, I grew up in an activist household. I always say, you know, other people used to like do things as a family, like play tennis together or go water skiing. And we pro we went to protests. My mom had a group of friends and these women were very involved originally in the civil rights movement. uh, And then the anti-Vietnam movement. And so I came from that background. So I admired Jane. Lily, as I said, Lily gave me my first writing job. So, you know, she had a special place in my my heart. And um, I also loved, you know, I, 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 I loved her as a performer. And then Dolly, you know, who I knew the least originally, I kind of know the most now. Dolly Parton is the best human being I've ever met in my entire life. Say more. Well, what you see is what you get. Exactly what you think she is, she really is. There is no public persona and private persona. She is generous and loving and treats everyone incredibly well. One thing that I think tells the story is the same people that were working for her from the woman who runs her office to the woman who does her wigs, the same people that were working for her 40 years ago when we did nine to five are still working for her. That doesn't happen that often in Hollywood. One of the things that I'm interested in is, you know, we talk about the outgrowth of say me too and now black lives uh, matter I'm on a board of a group called Young Entertainment Activists, and there's a bunch of young folks. This sort of comes out of the Me Too movement. And I see a lot of people who are in the place that you were 40 years ago. What about the the young women who are trying to climb the Hollywood mountain or the minorities in Hollywood who are trying to do a little bit of what you've done, whether it's with 9 to 5 or a musical or any number of your work, what would you say to those, that that 27-year-old right now who's like, I have a killer idea and I have a story to tell? I mean, I think I would say as bad as it is now, and it's still, you know, women and other minorities are, are 
you know, if you if you look at the numbers and the director's guild and the writer's guild, um, it, it's it's still it's still pretty poor. At least it's getting a little bit better. But I would say writers write, writers read. If you've got a great idea, don't just talk about it. Sit down and write it. And if you can't sell that one, write another one. I think the biggest mistake that I made was as time went on, I lost a little bit of, um, I became too passive in my career. Things were coming to me. Um, and I would just, you know, say, oh, I'll do that one or I'll do this one. I'm not going to do that one. I wasn't generating my own stuff as much. I, I lost a little bit of the fire. Is, is that, is that, is that sort of battle fatigue for being a woman in, in, in the industry? I mean, when you said there was, I mean, on the movie nine to five, you got nine to five. I mean, is there, is there any, I mean, is that a, a, a bit of that, like this fatigue from 40 years of marching uphill? I mean, absolutely. I think, you know, the world tends to beat us all down, you know, all down a little bit. And I think, um, I think as a woman, it's even a bit harder. What, what I, what happened with my career is I found in order to keep working, I had to keep reinventing myself. So by the time that I was uh, in my early forties and, um, I had two kids on my own. So in my early forties, so that was the time where I needed really needed to be generating income. All of a sudden my movie career kind of went away. But I had to keep working, and 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 because I don't know, maybe if I hadn't had kid, had kids, I would have gotten on my high horse and you know been a bit of you know don't you know who I am? But I couldn't do that. I had to work, so I started writing television movies. A couple of them were good, a bunch of them were not. I did the best I could in those you know in the parameters that existed, and then that whole business died. So the next thing was a kids animated. A show called Olivia for Nickelodeon. I'd never done stuff for kids. Of course, as I've gotten older, now I'm not only battling being female, I'm battling being an older female in Hollywood. But I've continued to generate ideas, have things that I'm passionate about. And knock on wood, you know, I'm still working. 40 years later, I am still working. And as a woman in Hollywood, that's kind of miraculous. And I'm grateful for it every day. Uh, in my business, <laughs> that's what we call an end. Patricia Resnick wrote the original screenplay from 9 to 5 and Straight Talk and several other television movies. And she wrote the book for 9 to 5, the musical. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I've loved talking to you. And now, the spiel. You can't think about 9 to 5 and not think about the nature of work as we know it right now. Our lives and our economy are all in suspended animation. But what we know for sure is that the economy and the numbers are bad. Really bad. Take the jobs numbers. You've heard them blared on nearly every newscast every month for years. 
surging today on the back of a blowout jobs report. Two and a half million jobs added last month, the biggest increase ever. Well, and we saw that dramatically last week when we got the monthly unemployment numbers. All right, and speaking of the economy, we are waiting for a very important report today. The latest employment report comes out, the monthly jobs report for April. Economists are predicting the unemployment rate could reach 15 to 17 percent. Do you think the average American from the 70s or 80s cared about the monthly jobs numbers? You know what? They didn't. Yet today, on the first Friday of every month, the Bureau of Labor Statistics releases jobs numbers with as much fanfare as the groundhog from Puxatonic, but also with much more predictive power. What's funny to me about this is how few people really care or understand what the actual job numbers really mean. I'm including most business reporters in this. I wasn't the lone humanities major as a business reporter in public radio. It took me years to understand how irrelevant a job stat is. We used it not because of what it is, but because of what we think it tells us. In our modern time, the unemployment rate is shorthand for prosperity. Jobs numbers, though, are not the best indicator of the state of the economy. No single number is. But the jobs number sounds important, and it's easy to sell to the public. Consumers understand that hidden the jobs estimate is a good thing for Americans. Falling short is a bad thing. And reporters go giddy over the numbers, not because they're meaningful, but because the release of the numbers creates an easy story that reporters and editors can plan on every single month. And nothing makes a reporter's job easier than a scheduled release. And the job numbers are about as easy as it gets. Politicians and communications officers have figured it out, too. They will bullshit with their communities and constituents with the promise of how many new jobs they can create or bully them with predictions about how many jobs will be destroyed if they don't get their way. For anyone doing dark deeds, jobs are the ultimate weapon and reporters barely question them. So what does the unemployment rate mean when there's a global pandemic? Well, according to Joe Biden, the way out of this mess seems to be jobs. My economic plan is all about jobs, dignity, respect, and community. Together we can and will rebuild our economy. And when we do, we'll not only build back, we'll build back better. And it sounds like Donald Trump is saying the same thing. Over the past three months, we have gained over 9 million jobs, and that's a record in the history of our country. We will make sure our companies and jobs stay in our country, as I've already been doing for quite some time, if you've noticed. We will create 10 million jobs in the next 10 months, and it'll be higher than that. Do you really think after spending all this time working from our homes, rethinking our jobs and our commutes, that we're going to jobs our way out of the recession, depression, or whatever it is that we're in? Before the pandemic, Gallup released the State of the American Workplace, a survey of how people felt about their jobs. Only a third of people said that they were engaged at work. Managers, hourly workers, people with college degrees, most said that they were tuned out. That was in the middle of a booming economy. When people talk about getting back to normal, I wonder what they mean. The economy soared under President Obama and President Trump, and still, 8 in 10 Americans said they were stressed every day. Barely half of Americans said they were satisfied with their job. 
every single measure of overall happiness was worse before the pandemic than they were 40 years ago. We're in the middle of the deadliest drug epidemic in the history of the country. Depression is up. Suicide is up. Despite all of our medical advancements, life expectancy in the U.S. is dropping. And that's before the 180,000 or so COVID deaths. We believe a good economy would save us from our problems like these. All we needed were jobs. All we needed was work. But we see now that that was wrong. It was a con, a lie. The real problem is our idea of work itself. By every measure, work was killing us. And look, I'm a black man, so to me, your idea of normal was pretty terrible, and I don't want to go back to it. In February, the unemployment rate for blacks was one of the lowest in history. Now, President Trump, as he tries to win black male voters in his ass-backwards way, will trot that number out. In February, even with the record low unemployment rate, black men were still at the bottom of nearly every statistic. Want to know how useless the unemployment rate is in determining health, happiness, or opportunity? Here's a stat for you. The unemployment rate for African Americans was zero in March of 1861. Actually, sadly... That's it for the show today. The Gist was produced by Daniel Schrader and Margaret Kelly. The Gist, Mike, will be back on Monday. Thank you for sharing your audience. Check out my podcast, Bring Back Bronco, about the history of Ford's iconic SUV. And follow me on Instagram and Twitter at S-O-N-A-R-I. And every time I say this, the Latin teacher, Frank Raspis, rolls over in his grave. Um, Peru, de Peru, du Peru. And thank you so very much for listening.